You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Church, good morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. It was June 6, 1994, was the 50th anniversary uh, of the Allied invasion of Normandy. It began the historic World War II battle to liberate continental Europe from Nazi control. Obviously, a major event, not only in American and European history, but human history. And uh, most of the major networks on that day ran special anniversary programming commemorating the heroic efforts of the Allied forces and included several interviews with veterans who were there on that day in various capacities. And it was interesting, I was watching some of these interviews, how different the perspective of some of these individuals was and how that shaped their entire experience on that day. For example, one of the interviewers was a Marine who landed on Omaha Beach uh, and, and recalled the the terror that he felt as he hit the shores, the screams, the bullets, the bombs, the blood, the horror of war. He talked about how at one moment he, he looked around and, and just was evaluating everything that was going on around him and he thought to himself, this is over. We're going to lose. His perspective was so much different than the next interviewer who was a U.S. Army Air Corps reconnaissance pilot. He flew over the battle, the same battle while it was happening. He also saw the carnage, but he recalled it differently. He said, I I remember the Marines successfully taking the beach and the paratroopers breaking the enemy barrier and the success of their own aerial bombardment. And he said, there was a moment where I was looking around and I thought to myself, this is over. We're going to win. Two of them in the same place at the same time, one of them on the ground, one of them in the air, one who could only see what was right in front of him, one who was informed by a wider scope of information with two completely different perspectives. Your perspective matters a lot. Your perspective matters in the way that you understand the world around you. Our perspective this far in Mark's gospel has been one very much akin to the first soldier on the ground, only can see what is in front of us. Up to this point, we've only covered 20 verses in Mark chapter 1. We're on week 6. Five of those uh, was last week with Chris. This morning, we're actually going to take the pilot's approach. We're going to zoom out, and we're going to cover 25 verses up to the end of Mark chapter 1. And I believe this perspective of the text is going to give us a different way of looking at not only the ministry of Jesus, but the devastating reality of sin. If if you could summarize the main idea of Mark 1, 21 through 45, it would be all about the authority of Jesus Christ over all of creation. Jesus has authority over everything, right? Colossians 1, 16 says, for by him all things were created. By who? Him. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is preeminent above all things. He is over all of creation. We're going to see evidence of that this morning in this passage in Mark chapter 1. But beyond that, the perspective that we're going to get as we look through these 25 verses should in some way change the way we view the reality of sin. 
So let's jump in. We've got a lot of ground to cover here. Let's read the first eight verses. This is Mark 1, 21 through 28. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. For he taught them as one, it says, and they were astonished, sorry, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. If you recall last week, uh, Jesus called Simon, Andrew, James, and John to follow him as his disciples. And, And they begin at some point following him. It says that they go from where they were on the Sea of Galilee into a place called Capernaum, or as we would say it in the south, Capernaum, right? It's Capernaum. It's Capernaum. This is in the uh, northern portion of Israel, small village on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It translates, Capernaum translates literally to the village of Nahum. Uh, If you think of Nahum, the minor prophet, some of you had no idea that's in your Bible. Nahum, the minor prophet, populated largely by fishermen, given its proximity to the sea, which explains why Jesus' disciples lived here. Capernaum ends up being an important location in the Gospel of Mark. Mark situates this place as one of Jesus' main preaching and ministerial headquarters during his earthly ministry. And notice where Jesus goes first. It says in verse 21, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Jesus begins his ministry effort by going into the synagogues, which if you remember, was the pattern of who? Paul. In the book of Acts, remember we were in Acts for about six weeks over the summer, Paul would always go into the synagogues first and then into the rest of the city to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He no doubt developed this methodology by examining Jesus. And just as a side note, I have a picture for you for Capernaum. Uh, This is what archaeologists believe is the remains of the synagogue that Jesus taught in in Capernaum. Still foundation laid, still some of the pillars set up there. Uh, This is almost certainly where he would have preached during this portion of of Mark 1, 21 through 28. So he goes into the synagogue, he begins to teach, and this teaching is apparently unlike anything anyone has ever heard. They are blown away by it because of the authority. Notice that's what it says, the authority with which he preaches, which was different, Mark says, than the scribes. Now, when we think of the word scribe, you think of the American-English understanding of what a scribe is, a copyist, right? Someone who takes a document and writes the words on that document onto another document. Someone who is transmitting data from, from one piece of paper to another. That's not how an Old Testament scribe operated. An Old Testament scribe was simply an expert in Old Testament law. So some of your translations might even say lawyer, which I think is equally unfortunate because of our modern understanding of lawyer today as well. Really, the best way of thinking about this is just simply a teacher of the law. 
an Old Testament expert, a theologian of the Old Testament. You can think of it that way. But there's one major difference. Scribes, when they would teach the Old Testament, they would do so by appealing to other theologians and rabbis to formulate their ideas to then lay the material before the people. This is not what Jesus does. He doesn't appeal to Rabbi Gamaliel or or, or this individual over here or this tradition over here. Jesus unfurls the scroll. He begins to teach through the Old Testament. And every time he does, he gives interpretation from himself because he's the living word. He doesn't need to appeal to anyone else. This would have been seen as extremely authoritative. This would have blown people's minds. Now, while this is happening, verse 23 says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, this is just a very awkward scene, is it not? Imagine that you're sitting right where you are right now, 930 church service, you've got your Bibles open, you're listening, of course, intently. You're astonished at the preaching, of course. And in the middle of my sermon, someone stands up, a demon-possessed person, and they begin yelling a bunch of nonsense across the room. Except for in Mark's context, it's not nonsense. Everyone else in the room is enamored with Jesus' ability to teach. The the authority with which he teaches is is mind-boggling. Wow, this guy's going to be the next big thing, right? TBN's going to call him any moment. He's going to have a book deal. He will be at every Mardell best-selling. I mean, this guy is... Ironically, he is. The Bible's the best-selling book of all time. I just thought I'd throw that out there. But, but not the demon. The demon is not thinking that at all. He's not, he's not thinking about the oratory skill of Jesus. He's not thinking about the authority with which he's teaching. He says, you are the Holy One of God. He gets it right. And look at what Jesus says to him. He says, shut up! Translation says, be silent, but I mean, it's the Greek word themao. It's a word that means to muzzle or to tie shut. He's saying, zip it, put a cork in it, right? I mean, be quiet. Now, why does Jesus do this? As you're going to find out in Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't want anyone knowing his real identity. This is what scholars refer to in Mark's gospel as the divine secret. As Jesus goes through his earthly ministry, he is constantly telling people like, hey, don't go tell other people what just happened. Right? He's trying to keep his identity a secret. And there's a reason for that. In fact, it's not until the very end of Mark's gospel, Mark 15, 39, right after Jesus dies on the cross, that the first human being, a Gentile, nonetheless, looks up and says, truly, this man was the son of God. It's the first time a human being rightly recognizes who Jesus is. The demon is not under uh, any delusion. He knows exactly who Jesus is. And so Jesus silences him and commands him to come out of the man at once. Verse 26 says, the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And this is like in the movies, isn't it? He's convulsing, he's screaming, probably vomiting at some point. Exorcisms are nasty business. It's not a problem for Jesus though. And again, the people look, they notice the authority of Jesus. They say, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately Jesus becomes famous in this area. Verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You know, whenever we think about demonic power, demonic activity, it's scary. 
I mean, if you're just being honest, it's scary. It's a terrifying thing. We live in this world where we're like, we don't really think about demons. It's very materialistic. It's very postmodern. Uh, you know, it's not real unless it's, I can see it or, or, or sense it empirically. The ancient people understood the terror of demons. Demons were, are tremendously powerful beings. They're, they're not omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent. In other words, they, they don't know all things. They, they don't uh, exist in all places at one time. They don't have unlimited power. Those are only attributes of God. Only God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. But, but they are more powerful than we are. And, and, they, and they do know more than we do. And they seem to get around more effectively than we do. Demons are not to be toyed with. They're not to be taunted. They're not to be taken lightly. And the ancient people knew this. They knew the real threat that comes from demonic power. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, shut it up, get out. And the demon leaves the man. They're like, whoa, who is this guy? He commands even the demons and they listen to him. Which I imagine, I mean, just put yourself in this position. This had to have been a little scary, right? I mean, as, as scary, as intimidating as demonic power is, Jesus shows up and just asserts utter dominance over them. That means he's even stronger and a little more scary. He has authority over them, not because he's a good teacher, not because he's great at theology, not because he's a, a, a fantastic orator, although he is all those things. He's the Holy One of God. He's God in the flesh. He has real authority over all things. And we see that here. Keep reading with me, verses 29 through 31. It says, and immediately, remember I told you Mark's gospel is an action gospel? Just boom, right to the next scene. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. Again, archaeology is helpful here. We have uh, an idea of where we think this house probably was. It's about 100 feet or so, a few hundred feet from the, um, the synagogue that I just showed you. These are the remains of what was likely Simon Peter's family home, where not only Peter lived, but also Jesus lived for a time in Galilee during this portion of his ministry. Uh, evidence also shows that there was probably a home church that, that existed here after this time in the first and second centuries. Uh, so really interesting portion of the world still left bare for us to see, uh, right from the Bible. Just a couple of notes on this part of the story. So for one, Peter was married. I mean, that might shock some of you. We don't talk about this often. Peter was married. Jesus heals his mother-in-law. This is one of the reasons, incidentally, that we believe, I believe, that elders in the church qualified by uh, the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are required to be married. Some churches will, will take the husband of one wife as like, well, if he's married, then he needs to be a husband of one wife. Uh, these are qualifications, not, not potential qualifications. He is to be a, a manager of God's household in a way that is consistent with the way he manages his own household. He doesn't have a household if he's not married in the ancient world. So this is, an, uh, this is a qualification, I believe, that is necessary for elders. Now, what does that have to do with Peter being married? Incidentally, uh, Peter is the only one of the apostles who describes himself as a fellow elder. So the apostle Paul never talks about himself as an elder. He's an apostle. He doesn't need to be an, uh, an elder. He has more authority than elders. He's an apostle. 
You, you never hear, obviously, Jesus talked about as an elder. He's God the Son. He doesn't need to be an elder. Peter talks about himself as a fellow elder. 1 Peter 5.1, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter can call himself an elder because he met the qualifications. He was viewed as one. Now here in this passage, Jesus comes into Peter's home, the family home, and he heals the mother-in-law. This passage always just makes me laugh a little bit. They give this poor woman no break. It says he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she immediately began to serve them. No time off, Mrs. Peter's mother-in-law. Get back to work, right? <laughs> Is it just me? Or you ever get excited when you get a fever? You're like, finally, a, a, an excuse to just lay down. No one is going to ask me to do anything. I, I, I just, I can't help but wonder if she's like laying on the couch, like finally a day off and Jesus grabs her by the hand, get up, right? In all seriousness, it, it reveals that Jesus has authority not only over demons, but over illness as well. He doesn't even have to say anything. He literally just takes her by the hand and pulls her up off the couch. Boom, healed instantly, ready to go back to do whatever she was doing. Jesus has power, in other words, over things that normal people cannot control. That's an important detail. Jesus has authority over things that normal people can't control. And Mark is going to reiterate this, right? If you keep reading verses 32 through 34, it says, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. I mean, they're like, hey, he can do this and do this. Gather everyone in the city who has that and bring them to him. Let's get these people healed, right? He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. What a gathering, by the way. What a massive group of either very ill or some demon-possessed. We would call this today Philadelphia Eagles fans, right? I'm just... just it's a joke. It's a joke. Come on. Don't email me. Don't email me. In all, in, in all seriousness, I, I think this is a, a good modern picture of this. And, and you'll think I'm joking at first. I'm, I'm really not. I'm, I'm being dead serious. Um, some of you nurses can attest to this. If you've ever been to JPS on a weekend night, these are very ill and, and some almost certainly demon-possessed people. It, it, it is Now, why do I bring that up? These are outcasts. These are people that you're probably not wanting to approach you on a Friday night while you're walking in. These are certainly not people you're inviting to church. I mean, unless you go here. <laughs> we'll take them. But, but notice that, that Mark reiterates the secret. He says, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. They knew exactly who Jesus was. He had such authority over the demons that they couldn't even open their mouths. They couldn't even speak a word. I mean, this is how powerful Jesus is. He tells them to be quiet. They listen. He keeps them silent. He doesn't want them blowing his cover. And this pattern continues. Jesus goes from there. He's out alone. He's praying by himself. Verses 36 to 38 says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, 
preaching in their synagogues and casting out the demons. He continues this pattern of beginning in the synagogues to preach and then casting out demons and healing the sick. And he's gaining popularity over and over and over again from town to town. News is spreading about him. And then we get to verses 40 through 45. And and this is another account of another healing, but this time there is just a very stunning detail in this story that I want us to cover. Look at verses 40 through 42. We'll start there. It says, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now, pause for a moment here. There's so much in this passage. First of all, we need to understand what it would have been like to be a leper in the ancient world. Leprosy was, with no exaggeration, the worst possible outcome that could befall a person in the ancient world, in this region. It led to both a physically painful and emotionally hopeless existence. If you contracted leprosy, you were cut off from your community, you were required to live alone, no one could touch you, no one could comfort you, you were an outcast. Leviticus 13 and 14 gives detailed instruction of how to, um, how to recognize leprosy, how to pronounce a person with leprosy as such, and what to do with that individual if they do not recover from leprosy. To summarize... This is what Leviticus 13, 45, and 46 says. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn cloths and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. Almost sounds like COVID-19. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. This is a miserable existence. You're not allowed to live among people that you love. You're not allowed to be in any kind of communal gathering. Anytime anyone approached you, you had to cover your mouth like this and say, unclean, unclean, stay back, unclean. You were relegated to live alone, hopeless, to die a slow, painful death. That's who this guy is in verses 40 through 45. This particular leper like all lepers, was relegated to a life of pain and misery. So he takes a chance. News is spreading about this miracle worker who has authority, real authority, over demons and illness. And he's like, man, I I don't know who this Jesus is, but, but this is sort of my one shot at a miracle. Maybe he has authority over even leprosy. And notice his posture. It says he was imploring him. He was begging him. And he was kneeling before him. He had knelt down and and was begging Jesus. And it says, the text says that upon seeing him, Jesus was moved with pity. Now, I want you to pause there for a moment. We've got to do some, some biblical analysis here. Because if you are reading this morning the NIV, your text says something different. Yours says something along the lines of he was indignant. He was angry. Now, why is there a difference? In Bible translation, English translations rely upon a Greek manuscript system to translate into English. Various translations use various different manuscripts. The NIV uses the Western tradition, uh, which includes Mark's gospel with what we call a text variant, a different word. It's not pity, it's indignant, it's anger. 
Now that might sound strange to some of you. There is actually some textual warrant for this. I don't think that's the word that's correct. I, I take the pity side, and I'll explain why in a moment. But, but this is a word that is used in Mark's gospel to describe Jesus. Jesus in Mark 3, 5 looks at the Pharisees with anger or indignant. It's the same exact word. Now you're thinking, well, that's the Pharisees. Of course he's angry with them. He does it to the disciples as well in Mark chapter 10, verse 14. It says that he was indignant towards the disciples because they stood in the way. They were getting in the way of the children who were coming to him. So there is evidence in Mark of Jesus being indignant in certain situations. Now, to be clear, I don't think that Jesus was being indignant towards the leper. I think contextually, he would have been indignant towards the social constraints upon the leper and this miserable existence that was confined upon a human being who bears God's image. We know he wasn't angry at the leper because he heals the leper. But the majority of the Greek manuscripts that are used to translate English Bibles use the word pity. And so for our sake, we're going to take the majority witness because typically that's the correct one. Typically in a text variant, the one that has the most evidence is the one that is right. And overwhelmingly, uh, the ESV, the New American Standard, the Legacy, the King James, the New King James, they all use pity. Perhaps what is most controversial about this is what immediately follows him having pity. After having pity on the leper, it says he stretched out his hand and touched him. I mean, this is the cardinal rule that you, you don't break. You don't touch a leper. You touch a leper, you're unclean. Jesus touches the leper. There's so many things about this verse. So first of all, this was probably, the text doesn't say it, but we can speculate a little. It's probably the first time in a long time anyone had physically touched this man. If you've ever studied anything about the importance of physical touch to a human being, it's very high. This is a guy who's lived in isolation, has probably not had physical contact with anyone in a long time. And so it's hard to know what it must have felt like, the loneliness, the dejection, living in solitude, being avoided, all of that undone in a single touch. But beyond that, it would have been shocking to watch. I mean, if you're one of his disciples, you're like, you know, in slow motion, no, right? Like, don't touch that man. If you touch him, you're now unclean. You, you can't go into the gatherings either. But remember, Jesus has authority over all things, including leprosy. I like to think of it this way. Jesus doesn't come in contact with leprosy. Leprosy comes in contact with Jesus. I imagine... If I were to guess, many of you have more in common with this leper than you are willing to probably admit. Some of you feel so unworthy because of your past, maybe even your present. You feel unworthy of love because of the things that you've done or said to other people, because of the sin that you've maybe never confessed. You feel that no one could ever love you or be in community with you or come and contact you for that matter because whatever you touch, you ruin, so you think. And so what do you do? You isolate. You avoid intimacy. You avoid relationships. You avoid opening yourself up to other people because you don't think you truly deserve it. You're just like the leper. Alone, miserable, you need to know that there is nothing that you could have ever done that is too much for Jesus to look at you 
and not want to touch you. Yeah. You need to know that the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cover anything that you've done. You need to know that the moment you kneel before him and implore him to make you clean, he will touch your diseased heart in the same way he touched the leper's diseased skin. Jesus has authority over the leprosy in this man's body. He has authority over the sin in yours. But it's the last part of the story, though, that is really perspective changing for me personally. Look at verses 43 and 44. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. He tells him, go and see a priest in the synagogue to offer an offering in accordance with Moses' commandment. This was what was dictated in Leviticus chapter 14. In the rare event that you did recover, you were not allowed to go back into the community gathering until you were pronounced clean by a priest. And you had to go through a whole ritual of sacrifice and offering before that could happen. So it's interesting, isn't it? The leper doesn't ask Jesus to pronounce him clean. He asked Jesus to cleanse him. And Jesus, after cleansing him, sends him to go and be pronounced clean because only a priest, a Levite in this society could do that. Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah. So he cleanses the man and he says, now go follow the law. Do what the word says, do what Moses commanded. Make the offering, have the the priest pronounce you clean. But the most shocking part is that Jesus tells this man the same thing that he told the demons. It says he sternly charged him and said, see that you say nothing to anyone. And then look at verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it. (laughs) And he spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. He doesn't obey. The demons obey. The illness obeys, the leprosy obeys, the newly redeemed man doesn't obey. Jesus touched my life when I was 21 years old. I grew up in a home full of drugs, alcohol, abuse. I began drinking at nine years old. I remember I was at a party my parents were at and someone thought it would be funny to give me a shot of whiskey. It was like a party joke. And and that began for me a path that I walked for several years after that. By the time I was 21, I'd lived a life full of regret, full of dishonesty, full of arrogance. I would party every night. I would fall asleep alone, empty, unlovable. And, And when I was not looking for it, honest to God, not looking for it, Jesus touched my life. He gave me purpose. He gave me a life worth living. And so I've just been honest with you. As I read this passage this week, and and I was working through this text, this passage just absolutely took my breath away, destroyed me, shattered me. Because I realized that as grateful as I am for what God has done for me, and I am truly grateful for the life that God has given me, I'm no different than the leper. Christ had pity on me. He he touched me. He made me new. He cleansed me. 
and I still don't obey him. The demons obey. The illness obeys. The leprosy obeys. The newly redeemed man doesn't always obey. That's a perspective changer. That should make you realize the gravity of sin. When you disobey the Lord, it's so easy to go, it's just this one time. Ah, it's not that bad in the grand scheme of things. You know what? I can ask for forgiveness later. Friends, not even the demons stoop to this kind of rebellious horror. That should change your perspective about what sin really is. It should make you think before you flippantly do whatever your flesh wants, that we, the redeemed people of God, say no sometimes to God in a way that nothing else in creation does is an indictment on how bad sin really is. God tells the stars to disperse and stop in their defined places. He tells the sun to go here, the moon to go here. He tells the ocean to stop here. He sets creation up. He tells the leprosy to go away, the demons to be quiet, the illness to stop. Everything listens to him. And he comes to us and he says, let me take you and put you back together and give you a life of purpose and meaning and value. And we go, well, how long is it going to take? The Cowboys play at six. That's an indictment on how bad sin really is. And yet, here's the good news. It is precisely for that reason that Jesus came to die for you. It is precisely that same sin that Christ conquers through his broken body and shed blood that we are going to remember this morning through communion. So our servers are going to begin to pass the first element. I want to set the stage for you. A couple of ground rules. One, this is a practice that's only for believers. If you're a guest with us this morning and not a Christian, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here to hear the word of God. But uh, this is for believers in Christ who've been born again. This is a, a practice that requires for Christians self-examination as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 29 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Perhaps you, like the leper, have disobeyed God. I want you to make that known to him now through confession. Perhaps you have sinned against another brother or sister and have not tried on your part to reconcile with them, and that is really causing some inner turmoil, I would advise you to go and make peace and then come back. We have a third course happening at 11. But we do take this seriously. To eat this in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink judgment, Paul says. With that said, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 24, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may eat. Father, we thank you for the broken body of Jesus, the body which took upon the fullness of your wrath and our place, that we might have fellowship with you. We thank you for the 
willingness of Jesus to take upon himself that which we deserved. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Following this commandment and this breaking of the bread, 1 Corinthians 11, 25 and 26 says, in the same way, he also took several miniature shot glasses full of grape juice and passed them around. <laughs> Doesn't say that. He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant, no longer under Moses, under the new covenant established, ratified by the blood of Jesus on the cross. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you eat and you drink, you are doing something. You're not just remembering the broken body and the shed blood. You're proclaiming the broken body and the shed blood to those in attendance watching. This is a gospel picture, in other words. It's being lived out in real time as we observe this. As soon as you have the cup, you may drink. Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that makes us clean, that makes us new, that establishes covenant with you, that allows us to have fellowship with you, that washes us white as snow. Lord, we're in awe of who you are, your authority over all of creation. And I pray that your word would sharpen us, mold us, shape us more into the image of your son, Jesus, that we would not take lightly the gravity of what sin really is, the, the perspective change that we get from seeing how all of creation obeys in a way that we do not. It's very eye-opening. And so, God, would that, would your word do its, its job on our hearts? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. We do have newcomers lunch after third service, B101. If you're a guest, we'd love to have you in there. We'll see you next time.